Collection. I'm Anthony, and this is Sean of the Dead. Oh, bollocks. I hope a zombie doesn't fuck me. <laughs> On this week's episode, we are talking about monsters. Specifically, very sexually charged monsters for the most part. We've got uh, Paul Morrissey well, and... hold on. I have something that I think nobody has ever said or observed before. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think we talk about monsters every week, because all of our movies have humans in them. Wow. Oh, man. That was so deep, and I'm 12. Uh... We're we're talking about Paul Morrissey and uh, Andy Warhol's Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein. These two movies that are very intertwined. And then for our picks this week, uh, we got uh, Night of the Living Dead, which is just uh, maybe, uh, theoretically, the most influential film that we've covered yet, which is crazy to say. But I think that, that, I think that I might be appropriate. It's, pr- it's high yeah. up there. If you crunch the numbers on it. If you're just talking like zombies as a concept, right? And then yeah. we have I I'm the pretty sure Sean and correct me if I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think this is our first ever to- time covering a Polish mermaid coming of age erotic fairy tale musical horror film. I think it is it is the greatest collection of genres of all time. I can't I remember. Say. I can't really think of anything that comes close. Yeah, I can't remember if my dinner with Andre was you know, I don't, I don't know. I maybe, maybe that one was also. Uh, I think that was Serbian. Oh, that that was it. That was the difference. Yeah. Uh, so, but, Sean, but the lore, you gotta say it like you gotta say the like the Ohio State University because right. you got to say Night of the Living Dead here, so the lore also gets that kind of. You have to say the lore. The lore. The lore. Uh, the. Sean, what did you think of this week's movies? I mean, a lot of monsters here. We had some ups and downs. Um. Mostly one big down. I have a new least favorite, most hated, most woated. Yeah. Sean's absolute bottom of the barrel, dog shit, hated it. And we also watched another movie that was the exact same as that movie, and it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, true. I, I got real Hotel Transylvania vibes this week. I, I, don't, I don't know. On what level? Uh, Because it's a... Uh, it's, uh... They're movies about sex, you know. So you want to be a film critic. Oh, okay. No, sorry, you went a little bit different direction. I thought you were just going to go straight up. But, like, you want to be a film critic. I'm just going to ignore what you said. You want to be, that's like your life yeah, yeah. goal, your aspiration. Sure, sure, that's your Naruto sure. Hokage thing. And your, and your whole thing is you watch a movie with monsters in them. You're like, this is giving hotel trends. Yep, that was, that was the big bit I was doing. Thank you for, for pointing it out. Sorry. No, Sorry, no, no, my it's bad. all right. It's all right. I, I, I oh yeah, because we're successful. usually so much better than that. That's way, way beneath us, <laughs> right? Right. To, these, for us with to... our extended fifteen to twenty minute asides about NBA Twitter, like oh, that's sorry. that's really below the belt. Of Seriously, I was re-listening to that. That is maybe one of our best rants. We need to we need to like do that more. <laughs> Talk about NBA tweets more. <laughs> I, it's probably the greatest goldmine of content that has ever existed. More so than these fucking dumbass movies. I'll tell you what. We can skip the movies. Next time, 
we just talk about our favorite NBA tweets. They can be about movies too, but mostly I want to hear Bam Adebayo's thoughts on Spanish class. <laughs> All right, so we got we got uh, Andy Warhol's two movies here. Let, we're gonna uh, read the the two summaries together because I think that it's really at the same time. Yeah, right now. Okay, on go. Three, two, one. Go. Maverick Paul Morrissey's moralistic take on modern values is a brash mixture of humor, horror, and sex, and a revelation to fans of the horror. In Blood for Dracula, the infamous count searches really for virgin blood. Criterion presents the long suppressed director's cut of this outrageous cult classic in a widescreen transfer. I did not expect to hear basically a mirror image. Yes. Sex and sexuality. Heavily edited and widescreen. <laughs> widescreen trans- really, all you need to know. Presents. Yeah, I mean, true. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> the widescreen was really important there. That ingredient. I think so because you there's a lot of things in these movies that you want to see in as wide a screen <laughs> as possible. There's a lot of tableaus, so I think we should probably. It sucks because we watch them in reverse order, so there's no. Mm-hmm. We can't really do our well, watch order here, right? Flesh, Flesh for Frankenstein came out first. It's also the first in the in the order of the Criterion Collection. So let, let's start there. Well, I was going to say that I don't understand that other people have subjective experiences that aren't my own. So let's start mm. with the movie I watched first. Sure, sure, sure. Fair enough. Great, great um, viewpoint for film criticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been <laughs> going really right into for me. Uh, so Flesh for Frankenstein. You really liked this. I basically I think these movies movie. are close to the same level of uh, quality, and you have a completely different take, although we both basically agree on them. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing for me. It's about it's about balancing on the razor's edge. Mm. Because a movie like this, you can do basically the same thing for most of it, which is be horror by way of just softcore porno and just trying to be trying to be weird, having a good time with your friend, being mad don't, random. Don't, basically. Mis- don't mistake my laughter for uh, disagreement. He, he's right. That's he's out of line, but he's right. That is exactly what these movies are. You guys, do you guys, everybody has like a little cousin when you're 13 years old, who's like eight or nine years old. And every time you would refer to this little cousin, you would go, he weird, but he funny, though. <laughs> this is the movie that that little cousin grew up to star in. Udo Kier is your little cousin, who weird, but he funny, though. I, I mean, I think Flesh for Frankenstein is a movie that a lot of people probably discover and are like, wait a sec, is this like... like the, the thing I was saying before is I think that this is a movie that I would love to watch with other people if it wasn't for the fact that it's softcore porn. Like, seriously, it's just like kind of... It's kind of the backbone of the whole thing, unfortunately. It doesn't really work without that. Truly, truly. I think Uh, that's our big point of contention here, is that I legitimately think that there's some real thematic heft. mm -hmm. I mean, there's an attempt at it for both of them, but Flesh for Frankenstein, I feel like, bears it out pretty well. Because the essential idea is examining i think you could say to, to what extent is is up in the air maybe i think it's pretty well but it's been done pretty well but it's examining the the deep psychosexual libidinal urges mm. that every human being has and 
how the weirder those are, the more ambitious and stranger you get as a human. Because Baron Frankenstein, right. Baron Frankenstein, and first of all, complete respect to Paul Morrissey for just completely sidestepping pretty much every single actual theme and even plot point really of, <laughs> of, Mary of the Shelley's original Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I love I, Frankenstein. Legitimately right. one of my favorite books. But I oh, agreed. It. Yeah. Crazy. It basically has nothing in common with it. Yes. It I mean this movie is so we we really I mean you totally got exactly what the premise of this of these movies are uh from both of us talking at once. Uh, which which I think somebody is going to edit to be one in one year and one in the other. Uh, but you totally got you totally understand what uh e- both of those uh move these movies are about. But just to restate, Flesh for Frankenstein is not your typical Frankenstein story. It is it ain't your papa's Frankenstein. It's a story about Doctor Frankenstein wanting to create the this perfect Aryan species at, that are flesh golem Franken out of flesh golem Frankenstein like. Uh, processes and uh, then lots of sexual antics ensue. A lot of guts get fucked in this one. A lot uh, of scenes of guts. One in get particular. <laughs> one yeah, I mean, particular. really one big main one, but I think that that counts for at least a few. I, I do really want to get into the characters besides Baron Frankenstein. Well, let's mm-hmm. start with him, right? Because he's the big dog in this movie. Like you said, he's this incredibly ambitious i mean explicitly nazi i think is is the idea sure Um, sure i mean these movies they're they're there for shock value right like all so many of the things are explicitly supposed to be here's something that's that's a little bit crazy oh you know Mm. we're we're oh we hope you don't get offended by this right sure yeah sure yeah um we keep giving Andy Warhol credit for this, and I don't know how much he did. It's, I, it's possible I just he mean, just gave Paul Morrissey money because he was his friend. I know. I think I give him too much credit because, A, obviously he's a big name, and B, because uh, the Sinking Criterion cover is like, Andy Warhol presents a Paul Morrissey film. You know what I mean? Like It's like, yeah, yeah this is the big thing. And also because I think it relates a lot to our discussion of uh, The Velvet Underground a few episodes ago, where yeah. we, uh, you know, John, uh, go back true believers listen to episode uh the john wu-tang clan for our discussion on that if you guys remember that issue uh that's what stanley sounds like (laughs) that's what he sounds like now (laughs) excelsior i'm zombie stanley you didn't have some more on that nope (laughs) it's actually i i think that was really tasteful i think he's not really well we're about to get a lot more tasteful because i he's not a zombie per se but i dig did dig up stanley's corpse to make the ultimate flesh golem of um (laughs) the ultimate Aryan flesh golem of dead comic creators like him and jack kirby i have assembled and Let's just say that I get the stuff I get up to with them you can't is a lot like it. what Baron Frankenstein is. I'm fucking Stanley's desiccated, decaying spleen every day of my life, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, we'll, we'll hear more. I'd of... say rest in peace, but I I know that he's not. <laughs> oh my gosh! We'll get more Fletch Golem Stanley down the line. I'm sure as we get more. He's going to be the third mic once I get him a voice box. To be clear, uh, big fan of Stanley. uh, All respect to the man, but also uh, it's funny when we make jokes. Um, 
Flesh for, uh, for Frankenstein and, and, and Blood for Dracula, both movies that I, I really talk about Andy Warhol a lot because when I'm when I'm speaking of them, just because they're they're advertised that way and because yeah, it really pulls into the narrative of our, our podcast. Yeah. I don't know. I think as an artist Andy Warhol's like kind of a hack, but certainly what I, I think that I wanna give him a lot of credit for having cool friends. Like I think mm. that that's a better legacy than being good at art or whatever. Like, like people like more him. enduring. Yeah, that everybody liked him. Have you he was ever, a cool guy. Have you ever seen Men in Black Three? No, it's it's funny <laughs> that you should say that. I was listening to the Pitbull song from that movie this morning. Oh really? You're kidding me. Why? <laughs> I don't know because it's awesome. I listened to it just recently because I watched the movie, but I wasn't like, mm, "This is a bop. I should re-listen to this." Like it's a good good song um oh, but yeah. in that movie they time travel back and they are and at one point they're like we got to go see andy warhol and you know men in black you think oh because andy warhol's an alien we get it and then the joke that they the reversal that they pull is no he's actually like a normal person pretending to be an artist like they're undercover and men in black agent pretending to be like a crazy artist to get in with all the aliens and like fashion and art and, oh, and so he's cute. like and so, like, he does all these jokes where he's like, I can't believe these people still think my performance is good. Like, they still think that I'm, like, uh, uh, like one of them or whatever. Like, they're like, Andy, come out here. And he's like, I, I'm watching this man eat a cheeseburger. Oh, it's exquisite. And that's that's how Andy Warhol talks. But, but when's, like, that's... When's Men in Black 3 on the... On in the... the spine number is it? Uh... K. That's, that's the best I can do at a joke right now. Pretty good. What? <laughs> hey, all right, man. Hey, hit the showers. Um, oh, hold on. I, I do. I think we forgot to talk about anything in Flesh for Frankenstein. I know we're bouncing back and forth here, but I do really want to give a shout out to, to the other characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't even think we got done with the main one, right? Because we okay. started talking about fucking Stanley's dead body. <laughs> you know, I it, mean, it's story an important of my, plot story of my life, really. Um, but. So the, the main concept behind Baron Frankenstein here is that he is this just insane, weird, sexual deviant. Everything that he does and thinks about is sort of about sex, but he also is, is weirdly, like, prudish and, like, for example, so he, one of my favorite things in this movie is that it just starts off with, he's married to his sister and they have two children. Like, that's not, like, a reveal yeah. or anything. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's his wife. And then she's like, no, you fucking idiot, you imbecile. That's that's his sister. And he explicitly acknowledges, like, hey, you know, um, my sister, she's, like, perfect. She's the most beautiful thing of all time. But also, I never want to have sex with her, ever. Ugh. Just does not matter. And he's, like, whenever he talks about, you know, going to a, a whorehouse to find a, a strapping area man, he's, like, disgusted Which by he the does very often. notion yeah he's disgusted by the very notion of large breasts like he's he, he's just like is talking about it and he's just like oh fuck i which, hate it so which, much which i found really weird i mean the 70s and 60s uh perfect woman archetype was very different from the the archetypes that we have now of like like the you know like the the kind of hourglass figure that we have in our heads is very different from like the 60s and 70s idea you always have the hourglass figure in your head dude 
Sean, shut like up. Either, <laughs> Sean, you either have, on the stinking Wizard Zozo episode, you established canonically that I had to be buried in a very special grave that was specifically for gay people. So you can make fun of me for one thing or the other. You can't do both. <laughs> I need to get my story straight. You're right. I- I think that uh, it's interesting to see that, like, that is seen as perverse in some way, because what is his issue here? What is it that makes, he, he's like a, like you said, he's like, oh, he's this weirdo, and he, like, has sex with his sister, but also says he doesn't want to have sex with his sister, but also, you know, he has sex with his flesh golems, but also he's like, you know, look away, look away, you know, it. And he he's disgusted by the notion of yeah, like you said, large breasts, but also just um, prostitution or uh, you know, sort of players. He he's really not inter- He hates the idea of uh, men who are very libidinal, even though he has to find one for his flesh golem. Uh, like he he feels like he feels half finished as a character i I think no i don't think any of those things are necessarily contradictory Mm. like the i i don't think the fact that he's ashamed of his sexuality is i mean everything about this guy seems to be about like shame or disguising his deeper impulses as something grander and more ambitious right because mm-hmm. he's talking about how he wants to create, like, oh, the, my progeny, the great master race that will, you know, establish Serbian dominance throughout the world. And then he's just, like, fucking them. Like, yeah. It, it's, I mean, really, it's just both of these movies are very concerned, I think, with lampooning, like, extreme politics, weirdly. Blood for Dracula, I think, a lot more inelegantly, which is part of why I'm not that into it. But. Mm-hmm. Flesh for Frankenstein, an element of it, I think, is very much poking fun at the fascist psyche and how much of it is just barely disguised impulses of sexuality and, you know, deviant behavior and just everything about it is just kind of this excuse to just act up and go wild and be crazy. A lot of people would relate that to, I mean, our modern problems with uh, racist people on the internet who, if you play the sort of stupid game of like, oh, someone says something racist on the internet against a certain people group, and then you like go to their profile page, you'll see them like liking a lot of sexualized pictures of that particular people group. You know, like there is sort of a relationship there that I think is becoming more and more obvious as... Uh, you know, you have the the advent of the internet where everyone posts everything online, but it is also really well documented here in a movie set way before anyone was able to have that as common knowledge, you know? Yeah. I wonder how long that's been kind of the prevailing notion that fascism is just this, it's just deeply about sex. I mean, probably for as long as it's been around, right? Because it just becomes so obvious. Hitler jokes are ob- obviously can end up very sensual and sexual. Although, like you, yeah, everybody's talking about how they want to fuck Hitler. That's, that's kind of the main thing that you that hear about. Not what I meant, uh, but I I think that uh, that also relates to like these these ideas of monsters. I mean, I, I, we don't have to touch Dracula yet, but but I think flesh for uh, although uh, some people definitely have to if you know what I'm saying. Flesh uh, for Frankenstein, though, I think is also a. a I mean, Frankenstein is a weird monster to 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 choose for this kind of story because 
Frankenstein has a sexual impulse. That's kind of the crux of his story is being like, actually, I want you to make another creature for me. Oh, wait, no, I don't because it's it's terrible. It's horrible. It's a bad idea. And that would be that would be to curse something else with, uh, you know, I, I with that life. Okay, let, but let's let's talk more about flesh for Frankenstein because I I there's a whole plot line we're missing here, which is the Aryan man who is related to this other guy. You, you they're know, friends. They're, they're friends. So there's this guy. And I this other I guy. loved I loved the guy that they chose or the the character that gets chosen to be the Frankenstein here because he is mm. just this. I mean, probably the most gorgeous, like perfect man. All the men in these movies. And I guess the women too are just like perfect. Sure. Like all of them are just beautiful, perfect. Except for, well, I would say except for Mr. Frankenstein himself. What? Who's Udo like, Kier's a Udo Kier. Ask any woman in your life, and they'll be like, "Yeah, that's the perfect man." Sound off in the comments. I will leave. If you are wa- listening on Spotify, you can uh, put. I can put out a poll. Do you think Udo Kier is attractive after googling him? Or, he's certainly uh, not ugly. Like, come on. I think he he's got what you I mean what the people the 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 girls in Blood for Dracula refer to him as like oh he's this ancient guy like oh he's so like ugly he could be twenty or he could be forty or whatever and I'm like I yeah I, you know he's it's he's not ugly but he's definitely like uh he's got a he's got a case of the old guys you know I think you're fucking crazy <laughs> but you know whatever. I say that right now, right now, uh, as we're, as we're, uh, have our FaceTime equivalent, uh, my background is, uh, Udo Kier in Blood for Dracula, completely shirtless with blood streaming down his face. Yeah, come on, look at that. I mean, to be fair, that's not the most flattering. (laughs) It's not like a sexual Anne Rice vampire. Like, he's, he's having, like, a brain hemorrhage. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I, I see the uh, i was so interested though i and again not to transition into blood with dracula but when you present dracula he is an ex- he is the most sexual monster probably of, of the classic universal monster yeah. idea um and yet he in that movie is presented as someone who's he's a little icky and and people don't want to touch him yeah he's he's a weird guy Sorry, I, so, I guess I should probably have had a thought there to follow it up. No, no. But I didn't. Uh, so we I, also I, have I his sh- sister. Yeah, who... I mean, I I love this character. She's mm-hmm. so fucking cool. Like, I mean, every character in this movie I actually legitimately love. Like, there's not one that I think wasn't super entertaining to watch. Sure. But she's just got a whole different set of weird sexual impulses on her own. Like, she's more actively lusting after her brother who just kind of wants nothing to do with her sean whenever there is an older woman who is somehow sexualized by the movie who Mm -hmm. also has like their own particular plot line outside of the main plot line you're like they're super cool you did this with four under blows you did it with two of the different two characters in amar cord it's like you're like "Mm, that's it they're they're super cool no they are that, I don't. I think that that's. There's nothing wrong with me saying that because <laughs> I, I support. It was wrong. I just said I'm, that it's a pattern. <laughs> I'm probably one of the biggest supporters of women in the world. Mm. The real feminist, the true feminist, male feminist, uh, Sean. <laughs> I, lo- mm-hmm. I, lo- 
I also love that your your name on the Zoom or whatever is Platinum. What do you <laughs> think that's based on? Uh, we'll get we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Oh, okay, so you Let's just say it. it's a really alluring name. Nope. Yeah. Too explicit. Pretty too good. Explicit. That's a that's way too explicit. That's eighteen plus. <laughs> Speaking of eighteen plus, but I legitimately and I all of the performances in this movie are just everybody trying to be the most random. Like it's it's like after hours the theater director has gone home and the theater kids are fucking having their, having fun like reading lines from whatever shitty fucking play they're doing in like a weird voice or whatever it does you know, i appreciate like that charm to it yeah no i mean it's i'm saying that as if it were a bad thing and if uh, that were the scene transpiring before me in real life i would go into berserker mode from doom eternal but <laughs> I, on a movie it's pretty fun I think that it does have that energy. I think both these movies have that energy, but I and I both appreciate it and think that it makes the movies kind of. I mean, these are not they're not good movies. I know you think Flesh for Frankenstein is legitimately good. I yeah. I don't. I think neither of these are good movies. They're poorly shot, uh, other than a few shots in Flesh for Frankenstein that are really cool. They're poorly shot. They're badly acted in a overacting bunch of theater kids kind of way that does not feel consistent but rather just feels like they're i don't know trying to show off and at the end of the day they're bad softcore porn they are not erotic to i at least i do not find them like erotic in the idea of like appealingly erotic i it's, it's like an action movie with pretty lame action scenes and i think that a lot of the times it comes across as like well, we need to have this scenario where these two people have sex. So, like, we're going to set up a sequence of events. Oh, no, this happened. Like, you know, the, 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 the stereotypical idea of a porn-type scene will often happen. And it's not erotic, and it's not interesting. And so I, I, don't, I don't find either of these very, very interesting. I also found Flesh for Frankenstein pretty boring. I, I, I didn't... I, I get what you're coming at with some of the themes here, but I think that a lot of the themes are are pretty obvious, and and I don't mean that like oh you need to have themes that are not obvious, but I mean that they don't feel very arresting because they never get a lot of depth to them. You end up with uh, Frankenstein being like I am I get it because Frankenstein's like Hitler. He he creates these guys and then he ultimately falls. And spoilers, he gets uh, really phallically uh, speared. Uh, at the end of the movie and ultimately feels like he did everything because he just wanted to have sex and and that's it and uh because he's somehow suppressing that because of his he's with his sister in some way that led to this creation of perfect arianism and that uh brings in a bunch of people including mr hong hunk and uh all the people that he killed to make his flesh golems and the end like it, it, feel, it feels very you know taut and pat and the storytelling's kind of boring and a lot of scenes drag on for too long and repeat themselves for sexual pleasure and uh yeah that i really feel like i i, I don't have a lot to say here you know i kind of close the book on it i mean that's basically how i feel about what's for dracula mm -hmm. but i think there are a few very important small touches that show me one that paul morrissey can be a pretty good filmmaker I don't think he's a master necessarily, but, you know, his craft is good enough where the other elements can come together to make it really hit for me. Sure. There's 
like something that I really think about with Flesh for Frankenstein is not necessarily the production value because it's obviously not a very expensive movie, no. but the artistry of everything really puts you in the proper mind space to go, okay, I'm watching a real movie. It mm. feels like a less expensive movie. It feels like an independent movie, oh, but it doesn't cool. feel like trash. When you say poorly shot, it's like, I, like at work sometimes, I'll just put on whatever is on the 2B front page, <laughs> and I know what fucking poorly shot oh looks like. Oh my gosh. This Why movie, would you do that to yourself? Because it's awesome. Um, there's there's one movie specifically that I think could probably get the Sean May Morning Sean Cast treatment. Um, but I think that there's a lot of really small things that add up to making Fletcher Frankenstein a really great viewing I think the sets, even though they're limited, there aren't a ton of locations. There are three or four, but they're all really nicely detailed. They look pretty much exactly like what you would expect from, oh, here's the Victorian kind of countryside. Got mm. it. Good. Here's the lab, which has all these weird little things in the background. And, you know, we won't just do static shots of them on the table. We'll do panning shots and whatever. We'll have beakers and everything in the way. We'll have points of visual interest. Here's, you know, the whorehouse. It's a little yeah. bit more cramped, and it looks like... I think that all the locations in this movie do a lot of the heavy lifting to make it to make it pop, to make, to it, make feel it feel like, like oh, a, quote, real movie, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or at the very least, like... Worth regarding enough... as, as, quote, cinema, as, as like, hey, we got technical craft down to a certain extent here. You can relax and try to enjoy it and try to think about it thematically rather than just trying to overcome in your head, like, oh my gosh, look at that, that's out of focus, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a good way of putting it, is that it's mm. just there enough to to give it the rest of the aspects that are actually good about this movie, sure. um, but they're, they're shoddy. Like, the fact that, I think it's pretty funny. There's a lot of fun physical comedy with him fucking the guts, with uh -huh. the weird little kids, like, just staring in on all these <laughs> insane scenes. Um, and that, I mean, I think that the kids are actually one of my favorite parts of the movie because the way they're used in the climax, the mm. ambiguous ending that they leave you with is, right. I think, legitimately pretty effective because the way that they've been set up throughout the entire thing, you you truly don't have any idea what their deal is or what they could possibly do. Like, mm. are they going to, are they evil? Are they, you know, going to do kind of the, the right thing here by letting down the Serbian New Yorker so he can go see the Yankees. Oh, like, he's, oh he's so good. He's it's so, so fucking sick. I love him. I don't care to learn his name. To me, he'll be, what's a good name? Like Eddie. Like Eddie, classic New York boy <laughs> he, who lives in Romania. No, Italy he's, in the second movie. He's, he's the Italian walking here. New He's from Brooklyn. Oh Italy. man, I'm in the I'm in the Italian countryside. I, I can't do a Brooklyn accent. Whoa, I can't fucking believe all these there fucking things were growing in our garden. Ayo, <laughs> ayo, hey, hey, pops, our vineyard's looking really fucking good this year. Almost as good as uh, uh, looking up Mets players right now. <laughs> Mets players. Derek Jeter, why didn't you just go for? I mean, oh, because you want to do? Oh, I get it. Yeah, okay. Current yeah. Mets players. You could have gone. I don't. Okay, which ones are good? None. Huh. I don't know any good Mets players. Not but right you know, now. I'm not okay. a sports guy. Fuck. All right, whatever. 
You could have gone Yankees. I know that like you're trying to be Yankees. Specific. Are the Yankees good right now? I have no Yankees idea. If they're right the now. Yankees. When when's the last time you heard like, oh, the Yankees are bad? Like, oh well, they're third in AL East. So, um, okay, Yankees current roster. <laughs> current. Is, this is roster. a great thing. This bit is, is gonna awesome. kill. Hey, yo, fucking Anthony Volpe over here. <laughs> Pretty good. Wow, uh, I was so that was great. That Man. was worth it. Every, listen, I'm getting, I'm looking at my phone. If Insta is popping off right now, baddies oh are God. DMing me saying I, it was worth it, and then Sean, they're doing the little clap. Sean, I think we did it. We just made money because <laughs> that joke just boosted us to the top. Dude, of the Zendaya just Venmoed me fifteen hundred dollars. Let's go. <laughs> and she said it was for for the Mets joke. It's just the baseball emoji. And, she says, and then she sent another charge of $1, and it says, if you know, you know, in parentheses. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I actually got Donald Trump on the line. We're in talks right now for me to for- acquire uh, the United What's States it? of America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because, right, because, of course, we all know that he has the power to do that because he is still president. He's currently is that the, the joke the, you're making? The current president of the United States. I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> Fuck you. Blood I for really Dracula, like... I think, is superior it to this movie. Flesh for Frankenstein, I, I I basically put them at the same level. I don't think that either of them is good. I don't think either of them qu- crosses into, like, functional movie that, like, does everything it's supposed to, that, that makes, a, that makes, that doesn't make me want to rip my hair out, you know? I think that a lot of scenes in these movies are meandering and clearly just setups for pornographic scenes and uh blood for dracula at least has the amazing performance by uh udo kerr right is his name udo udo main guy yeah yeah he's thinking dracula and every time he bites into someone he pukes and gives the performance of like he basically is like dracula from hotel transylvania (laughs) who's like do like he's able to contort his body into positions that like could only be fit the stinking director of Samurai Jack to to put him into, and I I, I think that it's funny. I think uh, what everything you said about Flesh for Frankenstein being sort of a funny little movie, I think applies way harder to Blood for Dracula, which I legitimately find entertaining if not good. Um, so here's where we differ. Here, mm-hmm. I hate. Blood for Dracula more than any other movie that we've watched on the entirety of the podcast. I expect it to be at the bottom rung for a while. And it really just goes to show when you're making a movie like this, you are on fucking razor thin lines. Like there is, if you even slip a little bit out of the bounds, you've completely lost me and it falls through. So my problems with this movie just start with the fact that it doesn't look nearly the sets, the locations, those were such an integral and cute and charming part of Flesh for Frankenstein. And in this movie, we're just going around in this fucking castle. Yeah, and it's not I'm a good sorry, castle. sorry, it's not a cool castle. It's even. not cool. I don't... People wander in and out of, like, scenes, and sometimes it's meant to look like they're in a private area, and then someone else walks in and you're like, oh, I guess this was a hall. <laughs> or whatever. It wasn't a room, it was a hall that people could just walk through. Who knew? Yeah. And so that was, that didn't do as much for me. 
Mm-hmm. Also, here's something that I really, and you know, this movie put it in perspective for me how much I appreciate it with um, what was the flesh for Frankenstein is how well balanced all the characters are mm-hmm. because they're all they're all weird, they're all random as hell, but it's in very different ways. I think there's this right. kind of balance of like, okay, the sister is kind of you know, stuck up and strange in, in her own way, and we've got these silent kids, and we've got this simpering Igor, and we've got Ugo Kerr, who's doing his own thing, but this movie, everyone is trying to be the funny one in every scene, except for, again, um, well, Udo steals our, our it. friend, the Italian New Yorker. But yes! I think he's I, funnier in this one. I think that he's too he should be. suppressed he should be. in Flesh for Frankenstein, where he's like, I still have to like be sexually viable. Where in the this, in Sinking Blood for Dracula, he like shows up, and your first introduction to him is him like being undressed by sisters. Like he, it's ridiculous. It's supposed to be stupid, and I think that his his Brooklyn accent actually adds. The, I mean, this. So this is what I thought about. It, you you've seen the Nice Guys, I assume, right? Like with uh, yeah. Ryan Gosling, and uh, I I you know the plot of that movie involves a pornographic film. That ever that they keep on saying like um, like it's not porn, it's sinking an art film, and yes, we have to add sex in it because you know we have to make it appeal to the audience, the appeal to the masses. But it has a message about like you know capitalism destroying blah blah. And I love when he walks into this movie as he's having sex with these ladies. He's like saying like, oh, the aristocrats, they need to, they, they're going to be, fall, they're going to fall under the, the weight of the people. The people are going to be able to rise up and everything. I'm like, that is exactly the kind of artistry I'm looking for. The kind of camp, stupid pop that I, that I expect yeah, from these movies. He's just like, like a really fervent socialist in this movie. <laughs> He's like, okay. But like, if, it's random. Like you said, it's like random. When he, it just comes out of him. Just spouted. Right? If, like, you, directly. if you've got like, um, if you're like a rose emoji pick through avatar type on Twitter and you're all about like, oh, you know, toxic brochalists, then this is your type of movie because <laughs> this guy is, he's talking about like, yo, the, the, pro, the proletariat are coming over here. They're going to, you know, the time the empire is ending. We're looking for a new era, and then he goes on to sexually assault thirteen thousand women. He is the most prolific rapist in a movie that we've watched. It's, it's just—I mean, it's ridiculous. That's true, but it is ridiculous. And that's that's the third pillar of I why I just couldn't stand this movie. Is like it's just so fucking gross. Yeah, there's just so disgusting. much rape. Yeah, and it's and that's listen. At least in everything in Flesh for Frankenstein is consensual, except for the, what is done to the golems, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just so ridiculous and fantastical that, sure. you know, I at least was able to level. disengage from that. But this movie was not racking up a lot of goodwill with me, no. and that just really tipped the, the boundary into like, alright, this is also just... Not really making me feel good. This okay. isn't fun anymore. Okay, but okay. So the opening shot of this movie is is <laughs> I'm laughing just thinking about it. It's Dracula putting on makeup to look like a normal person in that, front of that a was mirror. my morning routine. I was and, like, is this a mirror right now? Right, and putting on like you know stuff, a lipstick, and you know making sure his hair is all dyed and everything. And then the camera slowly pans over to see that, of course, he's Dracula. He can't see himself in the mirror. And that is the most obvious, like, okay, 
this movie is a comedy. Like, it's like, that is a joke. The joke of, like, that is explicitly ridiculous. There's no him, there's no him being like, well, of course, I can see myself in the mirror. Not everyone can. It's ridiculous. It's, uh, how does that work? You know, what, like, why is he looking at himself in the mirror as he puts on all this makeup if he can't see himself? Like, it's stupid. And I think that I accept more in Blood for Dracula because the, it basically starts and underlines, like, this guy is, this is a joke. This is supposed to be funny. They drive around with a coffin on top of their car because they're like, oh, we're taking someone's relative. But, like, it's, like, bouncing around on the street. Like, they're, it's very clearly not filled with anyone like mr new yorker italian guy is like oh i picked up that coffin and he's uh, it's pretty light and i'm like yeah we know like it's it's such a stupid answer like and then when we're introduced so so he's searching for a bride and he eventually alights in this household that has a bunch of the four sisters who uh and he has to the reason why he searched dracula searching for a bride is because he wants to uh he wants to suck their blood uh, but only if they're a virgin, because that will satisfy him so that he can continue his immortal life or whatever. And the way they show that the, that some of the girls are not virgins is that in their opening scene, they just take off their tops because they're like, what? It's no big deal. We can take off our tops. And it's stupid and it is sexual and it is pornographic because, you know, that's their that's that kind of a movie. But it's funny it's a joke it's a comedy and i i think that in a flash for frankenstein uh, although obviously there are comedic moments and obviously the whole premise of flash for frankenstein is inherently ridiculous i think that it takes itself a little too seriously and wants to have some kind of horror to its uh moments in some areas a little too much and and so it doesn't always come across as in, in on the sam raimi spectrum of things where on on one side you have like horror comedy and then on the other side you have actual horror and i think that it it, it doesn't find its spot and i think blood for dracula 100 does and so although i say think they're about the same i give blood for dracula a little bit of an edge because i enjoyed watching it it was funny yeah i mean it just it just didn't hit that way for me sure the sure. viewing experience of watching it was just so much nastier and grimier and had so many less like cute little things less memorable characters and the the themes that's you know I, i'm not saying that flesh for frankenstein lives and dies on that i think you can take a lot of that stuff out and it's still pretty fun to watch mm. i think that's what tips it into being like oh no this is actually a a real a real underappreciated classic in a sense i mean maybe classic is like slightly too far but i think only mm -hmm. slightly because i love what it's doing so so much and flesh blood for dracula just absolutely does not have that effect for me the nastiness of it just ooh, it's got but creepy how, crawlies on my skin and i how can you say that when there's lines in this movie that are like 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 the blood of these whores is killing me and you should uh lose that uh virginity of yours <laughs> like it's it's so yeah. stupid like I, I, get I, it. I wish I, I could like, it. like Listen. there's actual nastiness to this that feels a little less fantastical because it's being done to like human people. But that's kind of also part of the point is that this movie isn't about like the sort of Aryan perversity. It's about instead like the very limited.
limited amount of sexual power that any one woman will have over herself and how uh, with in, within sexual context they lose uh, their autonomy except maybe if they're able to have sex with one another like really that's what this movie is about and so that's why there's you know really horrible gruesome scenes on some level i it just really doesn't come together if i'm not enjoying what i'm seeing on screen sure i also sure. don't think that the female characters are as like interesting like again the, the supporting cast is what i think really makes flesh for frankenstein but Mm. I, all of the Especially women the who are who's really interesting and, and well written as well as funny yeah yeah for sure i thought you were making a joke for a second no. but um yeah but the, the sisters here it's like okay the slutty ones have one personality and then the one who isn't has another personality and it's sure. like, I, I, I just and there is a colonel sanders ass dad who pops in <laughs> from here and then to go he's... to the Oh, he's girls, so... are you making sure you're being sexually dominated? All right, thumbs up. And then he disappears. <laughs> but he also, he keeps on justifying everything by just naming literature, which I think is really funny that he's just like, ah, oh, yes, it's like, you know, I don't think that he says this specifically. I wish I had written down some specifics that he says, but he's like, oh, yes, it's very Shakespearean, all this. I'm, ah, like when he hears Dracula's name, he goes, Dracula. Dracula. Yes, it sounds really like it's from. A, it's from. He says it sounds like it's from a book, and it's like, oh yeah, because you know, Dracula. It doesn't actually sound like that. So it, it's. I. I. He's. He's stupid. It's. It's. It's very funny. It's. It's supposed to be all about these sort of buddy duddy kind of guys who are at the top of their castles, who are able to control women because they have a decent amount of money and are male. Yeah, I saw it a little bit, but, you know, I, I don't want to keep repeating myself. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. The last thing I, I want to shout say, out. I will say, I do want to shout out, play. you know, now, whatever. I was going to do a joke with, like, Paul Morrissey and Morrissey, but I didn't really want to do it. So <laughs> cut it out. Cut, cut it out. It's gone. I do want to shout out the scene where Dracula's in a wheelchair, because there's a, P a POV shot. It's not even POV. You're just zoomed in on his face as he's in a wheelchair and he's like scrambling around and it's like every drug movie you've ever seen where the guy's like whoa well it's just tracking his face as he like looks around and i i just that's the one good shot really in this movie and i, I we're here for it it's it is this is i feel like a lot of the times when we talk about campy movies and like camp in movies i tend to take the negative side of things i tend to be like well dude, you can't make a joke that's not a joke or whatever. And you are, you're like, no, no, it's it's clearly explicitly a comedy or whatever. And uh, I, I don't like how you shouted out how I say that all the time. <laughs> I, I've used the word explicitly in this episode where I'm consciously trying not to like seven times. Sure, sure. Uh, I think Walker is number one way in which I'm thinking of that, obviously. Uh, yeah, well. And But I just, I... There's just fun stuff in Blood for Dracula. Flesh for Frankenstein, it just isn't as fun to me. And it's, yeah, they're, but they're very deeply entwined. Speaking of fun, why don't we have fun talking about the next movie? Wow, that was just a smooth, stinking transition. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I am going to say Night of the Living Dead that way every single time. So 
Try not to get me to say it very, very often. All right. It's my 909 Night of the Living Dead. Hey, try and say, try saying it another way. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. I can't. I guess you're physically incapable of it. It didn't work. That's clearly it. Shut outside Pittsburgh on a shoestring budget by a band of filmmakers determined to make their mark. Night of the Living Dead, directed by horror master George A. Romero, is a great story of independent cinema, a midnight hit turned box office smash that became one of the most influential films of all time. A deceptively simple tale of a group of strangers trapped in a farmhouse who find themselves fending off a horde of recently dead, flesh-eating ghouls. Romero's claustrophobic vision of a late 1960s America literally tearing itself apart rewrote the rules of the horror genre, combining gruesome gore with acute social commentary and quietly breaking ground by casting a black actor, Dwayne Jones, in its lead role. And then it's got a little like, oh, Night of the Living Dead was restored by the Museum of Modern Film Foundation with funding provided by the George Lucas Family Foundation and the Celeste Bartos Preservation Fund. I said Night of the Living Dead. I didn't say it any other way. You must, uh, you must know that. So this is one of your guys. This movie, right? You're you're a big one, big fan. Oh, sure. Speak on. I wouldn't say that I'm even a big fan of this movie in particular. I know Romero very well. I took a class on him in college, and I watched. A big, uh, a big chunk out of his filmography. I wouldn't even. I would say most of, if uh, most of the big ones for sure, if not all of the big ones in his filmography. And uh, although he definitely skews towards the like shoestring budget B movie stuff that I tend to not gravitate towards, uh, just because I'm all about those big movies that are really impactful on pop culture. I, I grew in fondness for him a lot. I think that Martin, is, along with Night of the Living Dead, are his masterpieces, 100%. Uh, I think Dawn of the Dead is a little overrated, but it's you know pretty good. And I, I think that he's, you know, he's a fun guy. I, I genuinely think that watching his movies uh, is much more educational for a young filmmaker who's like, I want to make my own stuff than uh you know watching any other kind of indie kind of movies because they feel like movies made by a guy who has like loans from his dentist and his grandparents uh and, and that he's trying to pay off right where, where he's like i don't know i hired he, he the description here from criterion talks about wait uh, hold on did you say loans from his dentist <laughs> yeah. i don't mean that li- i mean loans from his dentist that i think that specific example is kevin smith but that, but I mean that type of filmmakers where oh, okay. they like. I thought you meant like ask, he was in debt to his dentist, and well, you thought he got, that was the same thing. He got loans from a bunch of people he knew in order to make this movie, and I. Was, I say I that say. specific uh, anecdote. I think is a Kevin Smith anecdote where he's like, "Yeah, I talked to my dentist into giving me a couple thousand dollars, or, or some." It's Kevin Smith or someone like that. Sucked off that, his dentist. Uh, <laughs> But I, they, the Criterion description says it quiet, it's a quietly breaking ground by casting a black actor in its lead role, Dwayne Jones, right? And Romero will speak on that all the time. And, and you cannot watch the ending of this movie without thinking, uh, of course, of, of incredible, uh, incredible political implications and uh, of the way that America has treated black people uh, in, in recent years and, you know, throughout history. But... 
I think that, uh, but Romero will talk about it and say like, I just cast him because he was a good actor. I knew like, he's like, this was just a guy who I, I got and was best for the role. And I threw it together. And yeah, I guess the movie does take more power from the fact that he is a black lead, but uh, he was just a good actor. I, I knew. And I, I think that these movies, uh, all of Romero's movies have that like feeling of, I don't know. I threw it together with my friends or, or with, with a small budget, with a small studio, and I was able to do whatever I wanted. And uh, they have some really fun moments. And I then got to afterwards, like, sit down with my friends, have a beer, and be like, this is our final cut. And we all watched it together. And we had a great time. Like, that's, that's, and I love that energy from them because obviously, as someone who has made their own stupid movies at home in their backyard with like a VHS recorder or with a DSLR or whatever, that is, uh, I love that vibe off, off of Romero. And I think this is his masterpiece. As far as, I don't think it's necessarily a masterpiece. I think it's a great film, but I, it's definitely the best of his movies. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's why I'm so fascinated with Night of the Living, Night of the Living Dead, uh, along with the fact that um, the reason why I say that every sing- that way every single time because is because of my dad, who also loves this movie and uh, only says it like that. And so... Uh, for him, I'm saying it like that every single time, uh, you know, so it's got sort of that family thing that I, that we also have run into where, I, you know, it's it's not a classic in my household so much as it's just my my dad just really likes it. He likes the way that that specific trailer. Yes. That's more, he's that's like, I can take or leave the movie, but I think the way he, <laughs> that guy said it was really funny. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. So this I like this movie. I like it a lot. There were parts of it, though, that I think someone who's a master of their craft could have turned this into, like, something insane. Because Romero, right? He's What I also think, you know, you mentioned how he's he's a really good benchmark if you're getting started filmmaking, if you're doing Mm. low-budget stuff. You can, you know, get started, see kind of what you can do with those resources. But I, I think it's also, like, really encouraging for a young film student to see, like, you can make a good movie without being that good at making like you can just <laughs> shoot scenes as they are shoot for coverage like an industrial film and then just edit it down and i, yeah. I think even to some extent like that that works to his advantage right like i remember the thing that really immediately roped me into this movie is just the shots of this kind of midwestern landscape of just a road right mm-hmm. and you're expecting something to happen you're expecting like oh is a zombie gonna come out and start walking around? No, like, legitimately. I mean, it sounds goofy, but it's just so immediately ominous just because it's just an incredibly mundane way to shoot the beginning of your movie. And I don't even know if that's necessarily an inspired artistic choice, but because that was his first instinct, it ends up with this incredibly, like I said, ominous feeling. And Desolate, desolate. That's the Sean word for for this. And I think... I was a little bit disappointed when there was just like a car, but you know, I think that works too. Cause it's like, Oh, you're, you're expecting the other shoe to drop and then the movie mm-hmm. starts. Right. Um, I also, I want to, how much has been made? Cause I haven't read like any kind of scholarship or analysis of this movie really. I mean, I know uh, the stuff about it, but you know sure. more about this stuff than me. What do people tend to make out of the beginning where Johnny well, Barbara, who's kind of the main character, is with her brother Johnny, and they start talking about, like, I think 
it's a little bit tough to catch because at first you think that they're husband and wife, but eventually you realize they're talking about putting like flowers or visiting one of the on their mother's grave, right? yeah. And there's this really interesting theme established in the beginning and not really followed up on, not in a way that's bad, but just like, oh, okay, it's out there. We're just putting it out there of like a lack of respect or acknowledgement for the past or for the dead. Because it's for the dead. It's 100% for the dead. You know? Yeah. Which character, I forget whether Johnny or Barbara says it to the other, but they say, oh, I haven't seen you in church lately. Like there's kind of an acknowledgement. Right, right. Yeah, what what we used to hold sacred in the modern era is kind of now vanishing. And I that's what I really like about it is about the social commentary aspect here is it's so subtle. There's so little because it I mean that first I mean one of the most important shots is at in that beginning sequence right after the car pulls up is at the end of that sequence you see directed by George Romero over an American flag, like setting you in the stage of this is anywhere usa you know like this is it is important that this movie is set in the united states and that political commentary there you know yeah and that's what i think the mistake that a lot of modern zombie movies make is that they just make the political commentary so explicit i mean i guess you kind of have to but it this movie is just so simple so stripped down so bare bones that the fact that it all it really needs is the context that it came out in. Because hmm. all you really need to do is say like, oh, you know, at this time in America, I'm releasing this movie. And huh. it's this, at the time, shocking, original, unique thing. And what are we saying? Oh, you know, we're, we're literally eating each other alive. We have See, but I don't even think it needs that specific... I don't think it needs that specific... I'm sorry to interrupt you again. I don't think it needs that specific 60s America shine. I think it's about any time in American history. I think that's also what I what I when I say that yeah, it says different that, things depending on where you're on when you're viewing it. Like Dawn of the Dead is so praised because it's like what if we put zombies in a mall? Get it cuz they're consumers, you know, like like Reagan yeah, era politics. Spell it out a little more. True. And I think that what is so interesting about this movie is how much you can read into the living dead, the ghouls, the what will later be called be known as zombies like i and and because this is an original after creation, rob zombie <laughs> who was a big influence in on george romero for this movie because of how scary he was I, like, it is what an, if i made a bunch of guys who were that scary it is an unoriginal uh premise i will say there's a lot of zombies originally started as a as an african tradition as a legend uh, but they were always, but the specific ways that Romero distinguishes them from that uh, make this a completely different new creature that uh, is what we think of as zombies today. And um, I think that it is, I, so I think that this movie draws a lot of power from the idea that no one had ever done this before. And all the metaphors that you think of when you think of zombies, uh, whether it is consumers, whether it is uh, sort of the religious masses, whether it is. Uh, whatever you're thinking of that you that you bring to the table of any zombie movie since then is kind of all in Night of the Living Dead. Like you could read this in in so many ways, and the point is supposed to be that at the end of the day, men in power are going to just fight each other over what little power they have, even as that uh, that greater evil is happening outside their doors. What really struck me about this movie is just how 
it uses the rules that we now know just growing up mm-hmm. you know as, as media consumers of zombies as like a twist right what i think most about is the fact that oh we didn't know that you could turn into a zombie right and that fact of like the kid becoming a zombie at the end is like oh shit all of a sudden makes it that much more terrifying and you had no fucking idea because how would you know that's not right. really something you would immediately guess mm-hmm. i mean there's there's also just a lot of rules that have been like changed because the implication is oh they're rising from their grave right but then there's oh no they transmitted like an infection kind of and right a disease right you get you get well what's so interesting is oh she got bit by one of those things is one of what her mother the kid's mother says and uh, then you turn you they cut to ben and ben just goes ah oh, that sucks like he, he goes like he says something to the extent of like oh man ooh, that's tough okay anyway like yeah and and you're like what do you mean Everyone knows you get bit by a zombie, you turn into a zombie. But this was the first time, right? This was the first truly. time that you would know that. I, I you... sorry, go ahead. Finish. I, finish I love. I actually would rebel a little bit against the idea of Romero not being a good filmmaker in terms of his visual storytelling. I think that some of this is definitely shot for coverage. But I, I and I, again, I took a. I don't like to be the, that guy, but I took a class on Romero, and so I was forced to sit down and write down like shot by shot dissections of like portions of this movie and although there's some where i was like dude can we not do that (laughs) can you are you kidding me why are we doing this 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 is stupid because george romero isn't like stanley kubrick levels of visual mastery by any stretch of the imagination i think there's a lot to uh, that he implies uh, especially about power dynamics after the, the after they finally get into the house and are settled in a little bit and, ha- and aren't nailing uh stinking uh boards to walls and worried about people getting in and are, are they're actually shooting things that have story purpose rather than just functional like and then they nailed stuff to the walls so the zombies don't get in you know when they're when they're not so focused on process in a James Cameron type way, and they're actually focused on the emotional core of these characters, I think that there there are some interesting shot choices that Romero employs in order to to give you the the vibe of each scene. I just think that they're a little fewer and far between than than your typical filmmaker. But I I think that all of Romero's work in general has those things where you you're like, oh, that was that was very clever. That was a little well done. That was, you know a little interesting that you did that i think that uh night of the living dead only night of the living dead only uh goes above and beyond because it is the originator it is unlike even blood for dracula and flesh for frankenstein didn't create their creatures and uh night of of the living dead created something that has stood the test of time and just has such a potent powerful metaphor for absolutely anything that you that you want to ascribe to it and can create you can create completely new creature uh create completely new ideas out of it out of using the exact same creature as far as zombies go what do you tend to go for what are your favorite are you like slow zombies fast zombies you like science zombies magic zombies where do you land on each of these distinct spectrums I'm a big fan. My my big thing is I don't like the old school zombies, which are pre Romero zombies, which are necromancer zombies. Those are not my, uh, you know, whatever. That's a whole different thing, I think. Right. It's truly. like if a wizard raises like a zombie servant, mm-hmm. I think that that's almost uh, its own category. 
true. I, I think that Night of the Living Dead is kind of magic zombies, honestly. Because it's this oh, vague... The fact that it's not explained at all puts it more on the magic side, and also mm-hmm. the implication that it's this supernatural force raising the dead from their graves. But it's radiation is like a thing that's thrown out as an idea, but it, which is also really interesting, and like mm-hmm. uh, that, that actually is timely in a 60s America type way, because they're you know, they're not that far removed from a certain kind of radiation energy being super. Yeah, they're not that far removed from Godzilla and the threat that he poses. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They're still dealing with the fallout, but you haven't answered my question. I think that Romero zombies in general tend to be my favorite kind of zombies. I like when they come back from the dead because my favorite thing is that uh, for some reason cemeteries are creepy. That's just a thing that is true. Yeah, for and- some, I wonder what it could be. <laughs> No, but like, you know, there's like dead people around, but dead people don't have to be Yeah, scary. for some reason, guns are, are dangerous. No, 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 but um, guns kill people. People who are dead don't kill people. Like, that's not a thing that 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 happens. You know, people don't rise from the grave and, and murder you. And yet when you walk through a cemetery as a kid, you're like, this is a little creepy. I don't, I don't like it. Like, there's the implication of like, there are dead bodies around, but... There's no immediate threat. Yeah, and, and so you, I like love... you don't when once you become an adult, you realize like, okay, no, there's something like kind of, kind of beautiful and useful about sure. Them. Yes, because certainly. you can dig them up and fuck them. Hey there, true believers. <laughs> and so I think that... I'm not licked yet. Yes, yes, his thumb shots haven't blown the guts out of me yet. I'm still intact for now. I hope that's boy. Right. It's swimming around, and now I'm like a. I'm like a big full fish tank. You can hear me slashing around. Oh my gosh. Watch for my cameo in Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> where I burst like a balloon because I one load too many. I think that there's... I think that uh, that's why I enjoy the, the rising from the grave type zombies is because it takes what's already inherently creepy about cemeteries and makes it an actual literal threat. And also I love the trope of like someone's like, who, I think we're safe. Where are we? Looks around. They're in a cemetery and they're like, Oh, the worst possible place for, for zombies. I, I definitely just recently, and I know I just said, I don't like necromancers zombies, but I just recently had uh, a funeral for a D and D character in one of my campaigns. And then a necromancer showed up and they were like, Oh, crap i can't believe we got caught with like basically with our pants down in the middle of like a cemetery and and i think that i love that implication i love the i I, we you need to have infections that's the most important part of any zombie the one thing i don't like is i don't like cannibalism and i know that like whatever that's obviously part of the zombie thing but i like the like bite and just their their purpose is to just infect more people and I, i i that's that's more my vibe than um like oh and then they eat them it's you know they're gonna they're gonna eat them i think like cannibalism is just one of the most existentially terrifying things period like it's just so awful that i love it like it fucking it really always gets me and creeps me out but i don't know i just think it's so cool for that reason it's here's the thing like any kind of methodical cannibalism is like Mm. really bad but if you're like a Viking berserker and you're just, you know, tearing chunks off of your enemy in the middle of battle, like that's cool. That's the how, kind of thing I like. How often are you going to say berserker in this episode? We're up to two. We're up to um, two, and the night is still young. 
the night of the living dead. But generally, I, I just really enjoy that Night of the Living Dead is the template for all these zombie movies. It is, I mean, when you watch an episode of, like, Walking Dead, you're like, okay, they're going to be in a place that's, like, boarded up from zombies, and they're going to maybe shoot at them with a, a shotgun or a similar weapon, and then debate about whether they're the real monsters for wanting power against each other. And that's it, right? Like, we're, we're done. Like, you, you can write that story today, and it can get greenlit as a script, you know? What are your favorite kind of zombies, Sean? Here's the thing. I I have different parts of the spectrum that I like. Hmm. Slow zombies are really cool. Sure. Because just conceptually, like, the idea that there needs to be a critical mass of them before they're dangerous. Mm, the fact that they're yep. dangerous means that there's an insane critical... But also just the... The idea of something slowly walking towards you and you're fucked eventually, but you can be at this kind of half state of rest where you're just like, okay, I know it's coming. I can't like the, the mm-hmm. idea that you can never, ever be safe and the adrenaline yes. never even catches up to you. Like you always just have to in clear mind, just consider your inevitable demise creeping towards you. Mm-hmm. That being said, I like... I don't know if I like fast zombies more, but what I do like about fast zombies is just something that has no regard for its own body or its own safety, right? It's mm, like, yeah. I don't have any limiters. I don't have any pain. I am just, uh, I am just a machine right. who just whose sole purpose of absorbing stimuli is directed towards just fucking you up. I right. the, I really their, their like job is to is to just gut it, gun it towards you and, and eat you up. No, uh, pun totally intentional. Uh, James Gunn, writer of Dawn of the Dead, who wrote Fast Zombies. Yeah, I I think I like the Resident Evil method of zombies a lot, mm. which is just like scientific, but if we're doing science, then we're also getting crazy with it, and we're sure. doing like mutation shit too, so... There are just your regular run-of-the-mill zombies walking around, but there are also boss fight zombies that have, yeah. like, 17 arms, and they're, like, dragons or crocodiles or whatever. I think it works in certain contexts. Basically, exclusively for Resident Evil. Because I think Resident right. Evil is cool. Yeah, of course. One of, one of my favorite things, though, in, in fiction is when you have a premise that you spend the whole bit of fiction, whether it's a movie or a TV show, just around that premise without having to build on it. Like, you build on it by continuing to explore the, like, three rules you set up, but you don't have to, like, add new hiccups or something like that. Like, like for example, like, Groundhog Day, right? It's this guy, and he's stuck in one day that repeats over and over again. And so when he, and and the movie never lets up. I mean, obviously at the end, he gets out of it. But it's not like, oh, he actually can repeat this one instance over and over again. It's actually like, uh, or there's like some way to develop it. Like, like you know, like when Happy Death Day eventually comes out, like by then they have to find new ways to add uh, hinges on the time loop. Like how there can be variations. Other people can get looped into it with like Palm Springs or something like that, right? I think that those kinds of that kind of premise is really it's impressive that it pulls off the idea that idea over and over and over again without adding something new, some new hiccup or some way that he like develops the premise that he can make a whole movie out of that. And so uh, zombie mutations, not 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 such a fan. I, I like 
just having the horde that's outside, ever-present, always growing closer, because if you can make something, if you can make a good story out of that, then uh, you can then then you can go really far, and people can think about it for a, a lot longer than it's like oh yes, but of course we we know that there's also buff zombie and vampire zombie and you know and fat zombie exactly exactly it's, dude like if you, you have to hit they, X and Y at the same time <laughs> to figure this one out like fat guys stay winning because they're the most powerful enemy. In, it all, in every game. Yep. I'm like, thinking Arkham Knight too. <laughs> Arkham yeah, Knight yeah, has yeah. that a lot. Or like Kingdom Hearts big bodies, you gotta hit them from behind. And you you know uh, you know I like doing that. Um <laughs> sorry, my bad. He really does true believers. Don't doubt him for a second when he says that. I did and look at the state of me. <laughs> Completely bisected. I've been unseen. Is this our most offensive bit? I don't think so. <laughs> Mostly because it's true. Like it. I think people hear it and they and they smile mildly and they applaud <laughs> as if they were watching a, a, a golf game, a, a thrilling golf match. <laughs> yes, because it's like you know whatever people's personal thoughts might be on fucking Stanley's corpse, like they just they love watching a master at work, and that's about it. Wow, uh, we are basically the Tiger Woods of offensive bits. I don't right. think that's true. <laughs> I think that you have to let me get a little bit more flexible with my voices and the kind of voices I can do and characters I can mimic before we get to that title. And with that, I think we're going to wrap the, the book up on George Romero. I could talk for hours about Night of the Living Dead, but I but I won't. I, I All in all, uh, it's, just, it's just darn watchable, and I think that uh, everyone should sit down and, and, and put on the, the, the OG... The number one, never, never been taken down, goat, uh, knight of the living dead. So now we're going on to my pick. The Sean um, pick. I have been, for like five separate weeks, I've been trying to make this movie work as a pick. And oh, it's, yeah. it's just never quite lined up. But I wouldn't say this is one of my favorite movies exactly, but mm. I watched it fairly recently and I've really wanted to try and figure it out. Not that it's thematically super complex although it has a little bit of that it's mostly just very fucking weird and i don't just mean like oh you know it's oh it's random it's got all these these crazy genres it's about mermaids and it's like violent and it's you know Mm -hmm. musical like what but it's it's got some 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 quirks and some unsanded edges that i want to have you help me decipher but let's let's start off with the summary i just i just want to i just want to state like I said before, because I just, this is what's going to get you guys to watch this movie. Because I hope you guys will watch this movie. You listeners out there, I'm addressing you guys. The, the true believers, you might say. Uh, I don't know where I got that. Uh, the, uh, the lure is a Polish mermaid coming-of-age erotic fairy tale musical horror film. If you have not seen anything like that, I implore you, go watch the lure. You might not like it, you might hate it, but you will not be bored. You will have thoughts. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't know anyone who could like really put together hating this movie. Yeah. But all right, let's let's start off. Let me tell you a little bit more about it. Sure. So this genre-defying horror musical mashup, the bold debut of Polish director Aznieska Smoczniczna, follows a pair of carnivorous mermaid sisters drawn ashore to explore life on land in an alternate 1980s Poland. 
Their tantalizing siren songs and otherworldly auras make them overnight sensations as nightclub singers in the half-glam, half-decrepit world of <coughs> imaginary. The director gives fierce teeth here, viscerally sensual, darkly feminist twists on Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, in which the girl's bond is tested and her survival threatened after one sister falls through. Coming of age in a fairy tale with catchy synth-fueled soundtracks, outrageous song and dance numbers, and lavishly grimy sets, the lore explores its themes of emerging female sexuality, exploitation, and the compromises of adulthood, the savage energy, and the ritualized. The lore is alluring, and I mean that it is entertaining. It's about these two women who are mermaids who get found by another woman who works at a, uh, a nightclub, a gentleman, well, not even a gentleman, there's, there's women there too. Like they, a seedy nightclub. I I, re- right. I like the Criterion's description of it because it really does balance being like kind of upscale and ritzy, like kind of like mm-hmm. a modern nightclub sense, and also just very grimy and downtrodden in certain ways. It right. the entire movie kind of oscillates between those two things, and the main setting really really serves that. Yeah, and I I I think that it's uh it it, it so they get tired for. So they get hired to sing at this club, and they are uh, a huge attraction, and they are able to, uh, because of course they are mermaids, they sing siren songs, basically. Even though they don't sing siren songs, they sing like 80s synthy pop-ish type music that is also non-diegetic or diegetic, depending on the sequence. Yeah, I made a note of that specifically. Like some, it just alternates here and there. and Right. I mean, that's all of it has this kind of ethereal fairy tale feeling to it, and that mm. contributes a lot to it as well. I really liked the aspect of this movie that is the general acceptance of just magical and fantastical elements in like a nonchalant way. It seems right. as if people in this world, like magic isn't really a natural thing exactly to them, mm. but it's just sort of acknowledged as, yeah, I guess that exists. It's uncommon and it pops up. But if, if we see someone with a fish tail, like we won't really freak out. We'll right. just be like, oh, that's cool. Right. I, I mean, that I've had to describe again. I don't, you know, fill out your, fill out your, 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 take your little Anthony says this thing shot. But uh, D&D. Um, <laughs> D, uh, I think D&D. it's only happened twice within half an hour. I, yeah, but it's still a lot. Uh I just say every week is what I mean. Uh, in in D and D, I try to describe how common magic is in my world, and I'm like, I, it's it, it's exceptional, but in the same way that like any talent is exceptional. Like, oh, cool, you do magic. Oh, what's like what what's that like? And I, I think that in this, it's in like this... when you see a white boy with a fade, like a really good fade. <laughs> you're like, hey, you know, it's not something you see every day, but you're not gonna fucking call the police if you right. see it. You're not gonna point and go, oh. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> I mean, I will, but that's just because I'm me. I think it's hard to talk about this movie, too, because it is so packed. I, I The one thing I'll say about this, if you like this movie, like, this is not a perfect movie. It's not a masterpiece, I wouldn't say. I think it's very good. I think it's really fun. But if you like this movie, I want to be your friend. Like, this, if you like this, then you're into some, like, pretty cool stuff. And I, I'd like to dissect your brain. There's a lot of things about it that a cool person with a lot of interests would enjoy. Like, mm. if you're really into fashion, there's some cool jackets in this movie. 
Golden's red jacket at the end of this movie is so fucking sick. Yes, I yes. want it so bad. And like every dance number has a different like everyone has a, a whole new little outfit and mm-hmm. it's like incredible diversity as well. Like yeah, you got kind of a an old school throwback like burlesque dancer, and then right. you've got flight attendant uniforms that they're in for one song, and then mm. late then they have like Mad Max fucking road warriors yes like yes outfits for probably my favorite song i, I wouldn't um, even say road warrior i'd go thunderdome with the tina turner style look you know yeah 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 it's very wrestling um <laughs> yes but i that song by the way is like i said it's probably one of my favorites it's the most i listened to the soundtrack for this movie like quite a bit in between mm. my two viewings and that's the one that i that i listen to you know again the most frequently Mm-hmm. and i think that one's the i think that's my favorite too as well here's the thing that i want to say about this movie i don't know how good the songs are i know how catchy they are i know how musically how much i like them but mm-hmm. i do not trust the fucking subtitles on this one and it's possible that they just do not translate right. but it, it is fucking sanskrit to me it is like hard every, to, yeah every I, every I'm, line is like you know the eagle flies gently, you know, upon uh, over the white sea. I sure. want to make my grandpa my boyfriend. Like, sure. there's it's gesturing at something pretty interesting and cool always. And I think that there's even some like a unique appeal to that. Like, mm-hmm. I really like I like half done translations because <laughs> it lets you into it in your mind. Like, okay, I'm trying to put together this metaphor through this veil of different culture and this it's it's like a puzzle and i really like trying to figure that out and mm-hmm. abstract lyrics plus translation makes for makes for something makes for like something that, 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 that that you can kind of read into and try to try to parse yourself you know I, I i get that i i also have that same thing where i'm like i can't tell if the songs are bad and should be out of this movie or if it's just a translation for problem. This is the thing. The songs are also the best part of the movie. Like the well, best scenes were, are let's the, just the songs. That they're nonsensical. Right. I think even then they have a part in this movie just as an emotional anchor. I guess kind of emotional bridges. I sure, mean that's sure. I, I think that in general that's kind of the thing with musicals, right? Is you can either go with I mean this is a little bit reductive, but you can either go with songs that are outwardly expository uh-huh. or you know, you can have something that tells the emotional truth of what's happening without even right, right. really the lyrics being to correspond to that at all. I think jukebox musicals typically, which this movie isn't. The soundtrack which, is original. Like you, I also thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't fucking know what Polish pop songs were around. <laughs> like, it right, right. Like, any of these songs could have been performed by the Polish version of The Weeknd, and I would not know. I think that our fascination with neon in in right now is really interesting. I think that from the I have a list here that I that I made and I've been updating and I definitely need to add the lore to it. And I call it New Neon Wave mostly because mm-hmm. I think it's just fun to say New Neon Wave. Uh, but it's like neon color palette, usually an independent production with low income characters that have a social justice or anti capitalist message, and their plots and themes center around drugs, money, sex, and or mental illness. And I. That includes yeah. Punch Struck Love, which we will talk about, Lost in Translation, Enter the Void, Pariah, Drive, Spring Breakers, Short Term 12, Only God Forgives, Birdman, a little bit, Nightcrawler, Tangerine, The Neon Demon, 
Moonlight, Florida Project, Good Time, Eighth Grade, Sorry to Bother You, Uncut Gems, and Zola. And now the lore. I, the, these movies that are sort of about, like, I don't know, there's, like, this grimy feel to them, but also, like, neon lights and, and really, you know, saturated color palettes. And maybe there's, like, a nice little synth score going on behind it. And, and we're maybe fascinated with the 80s. I think that is good company to be in, generally. I like most of those movies, but that is that list could also be titled without editing any of its contents. The any one of those movies are the most interesting movie that your college roommate has seen. Yes, truly. Like my friend Robert, who you know I love dearly, but like any one of those movies, he'll watch. I mean, since he's been he's been kind of a movie guy recently. He's been catching up on his homework, but Mm -hmm. for like ten years of his life. He would watch one movie every six months and it would be something like that. And he'd be <laughs> like, dude, have you seen the Neon Demon? That movie's crazy. And I'd be like, yeah, man, five months ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As uh, Robert, by the way, as featured on your letterbox review of true stories. Yeah, be sure to call him up. Everybody, Before... hey, you know, he's he I don't want to go into too many specifics right now, but as of the recording, he's going through some stuff. He's all right, but you know, he can use a little bit of a pick-me-up. So be sure to give him a ring. He'll really like that. Um, Try and do it probably in the morning, which in his time is 4 p.m. Right, and 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 just and just call him and just tell him Stanley Flesh Gollum, and then hang up. And uh, and and and, you know he'll really he'll be encouraged by that. And never will. Yep. But he he'll he'll understand what you mean. Also, try texting him a link to you know some job opportunities that you've seen on Indeed.com <laughs> because that's something that you could really use right now. Oh man, got too real there. Nah, nah, it's cool. It's cool. I, it's but I think, love. but it's truly like the lore is just this stylish, stylish thing. There's not not a single moment where you're like, oh, I'm bored by like how it looks or how it feels. It's kind of always goes at a good clip. I also just said that, uh, you know, I, we're watching this in context of three very B-movie kind of monster flicks. And although this is not, I wouldn't say this is like some big grand, like, studio film or something like that. This movie has so much more glitz and glamour to it and, and feels like it takes a much stronger stylistic uh, perspective than, than the other three. Yeah, it's, it's sexy in many ways. And it's sexual. Yeah, but so also in like this very, that's that's part of what makes this movie so cool. It's just how much about sexuality it is, and also just how it entwines that with just violence and predation. I, it's about love. It's sorry, it's about sex, but it's also so much about love and kind of how that's. I think that love and like real true affection is the single most destructive force as this movie portrays it because i mean that's that's the classic thing with the little mermaid right as you know hans christian anderson is you know the the love ultimately dooms the main character in this bond this thing that she gives everything up for her voice her you know her bond with her sister her entire world what she is physically she gives it all you know to be with this guy and he's disgusted by it um i I think the metaphorical content there is pretty clear that it's saying oh it's it's love that this guy is afraid of like he Mm -hmm. when she like absolutely gives everything and bears her full affection for him 
And then that's the point where he says, oh, I'm not ready for this. And that, and in a sense, it's not even because he's not looking for love from because he instantly bounces back and finds somebody else. It's more so just the absolute catastrophic pain of trusting someone absolutely and then just having that ripped out from under you. Yeah. And how from there, there's nothing to do but just die. But, I mean, there, it's also done through the lens of, like, these young girls who are supposed to stand in for sort of young femininity and the exploitation of that. They're the, these people... You, they're mermaids and they're sirens and they but they don't know their power uh it reminds me of sylvanesso's song hey mommy where it's like these these people who are who are being exploited but don't understand the fact that they're being exploited yet who are who are trying uh, they're trying to to navigate that world and all they know is that they're unhappy and they're trying out love and they're trying out different men and how that's going to work and ultimately they are to a certain extent, innocent, even though they're full of autonomy and uh, can be completely monstrous. It, it's a very, com- it's got a complex idea of what a young girl is and, and how they act. And I think that it, it tries to show all facets of them, that neither making them victims nor completely uh, villainous. And so I, I see what you're saying there. Like it's, it's this movie about like love and you know the, these girls they go through i wouldn't say a love triangle i mean kind of but they no it's described that way i think on hbo max it describes yeah which sucks i i don't think it's a love triangle i don't well, think one i don't the, know i don't think, I think golden that that likes in... the girl that so the guy that silver likes i don't think so either i definitely not uh, right. that's not an obvious or snap thing that i think you would include in the in a summary right in the in the summary but i don't I think that it introduces an interesting wrinkle to it, but sure. I don't really know how well founded it is. And I want that to be something. I want that to be an interpretation. And I think Golden is a really interesting character because she has this, she's the one who, who is kind of responsible for anchoring her and her sister. I mean, they're basically sisters. I, but they're not, I think that they're not, well, the other reading I would actually read into this is that the love triangle is both uh, Golden and the other guy liking the head of the, tri- the top of the triangle being Silver. You know, where, where it's like, that's uh, the other version of the love triangle. I But I, I don't think that they're, you know, and Golden and Silver make out with one another once in a while, but I don't think that they're sisters, even though I think they're referred to as such, maybe. But I think that it's more implied, like, I don't know, they're two young girls that, that hang out together all the time. They're best friends, or they're sisters, or or there's no word for sister and mermaid. It doesn't matter, you know, it, it's no, there's no, it, it doesn't matter what which of those uh, really they are. The point is that they are found by sisterhood as a general concept, even if that can tilt into a sexualized version of it. And there's ambiguity to their relationship one thing that really struck me also i mean regarding their relationship they have this kind of telepathic bond right that Mm -hmm. is subtitled and we can see okay they're they're speaking in telepathic mermaid speak to one another but at times kind of in the middle of the movie it cuts out and we don't see it subtitled and we're just kind of left to have it implied what they're saying we hear the sounds, we hear the kind of echoes and clicks and whatever, that yes. there's some kind of communication going on. But I want to get into like, that okay, in a second. What, 
what are they saying to each other? And I think mm-hmm. that's where we can really bring in the, the room of maybe there is some kind of sexual relationship at work here. And right. it, it's not being said because maybe in a sense the characters themselves don't really understand what they're saying. When you're young, you don't understand the intimacy that sex implies. You don't understand the, the, the weird... It's not telepathic, obviously, but the weird way that uh, sex connects people, you know, it, it brings them together. And I think that these two people, even if they're these two, these mermaids or whatever, are bonded in a way that obviously we don't understand because they're mermaids, <laughs> they're sirens. But at the same time, they, it, it seems like almost a sexual relationship, or if not actually a sexual relationship, whether they understand it or not they're they're being thrown into it and they're trying to to navigate you know what about the other characters that are kind of at play here the supporting cast is kind of like the bands that takes them in it's i don't like them boring yeah i i there's a there was i was reading a lot of reviews of the lore just because i was just like is there anything i missed here is there anything i wanted to to bring here that 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 I feel like uh, I was losing the translation. I also was just fascinated by this because it's such a weird object, right? Um, and and some of them in uh, talk about like, oh man, the guy, the stinking bassist that they fall that the girl falls in love with, he's not just another pretty boy. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like he's a character? No, he's totally not a character. Austin Moon looking stinking. Like what are you talking about? He's not a real person. He does. He's he's just a dude with nice hair. That stinking uh, Silver wants to be with and eventually isn't with because, I don't know, he was nice to her once? Like Flesh for Frankenstein, or sorry, uh, Blood for Dracula. It kind of feels like at the end, her her true empathetic love with him for him uh, just comes out of nowhere. But that's how it is with, yeah. you know, young love and everything. And I don't know. I think that, I mean, I, I would agree that there's not like, of depth to him and he's not super fleshed out but i think that that lack of an internal life and just being having these seemingly like random and arbitrary impulses are Mm. that's kind of we're seeing the movie from golden's perspective right and Mm. i think that that's a pretty important part of it because she views this guy as just being this empty-headed you know whatever who's who's just kind of this pure harmful force to her right. sister or you know love or whatever to silver who's just who she feels like insanely protective of and she's vindictive and jealous and i i think that that's where we kind of see the lack of depth coming from him mm-hmm. so i mean i again i i don't know if i would even agree that he's like has a lot more going on i just i i think that the perspective that this movie is taking it's pretty essential that he doesn't have a lot of depth or character yeah but i i also think that it extends to the entire cast i think that there might be a lot read into sort of the 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 woman who brings them into the band who brings them into the act right she's sort of acts as their motherly figure a little bit and talks to them but really i don't i don't think there's a lot there there's also triton who is this guy from another band and you know because triton in the little mermaid narrative is usually their father he's the one who sets down the rules of like okay it's kind of a stupid scene even though it's shot like it's a terrence malick scene where like the the characters don't really they when the characters talk they cut away from them and you just hear them off screen saying the thing but it's kind of a stupid scene where he says like um 
Oh, uh, if she, uh, you know, if she decides to uh, lose her tail, she'll also lose her voice. And also, if uh, Silver decides that she's going to, if she falls in love with this boy and he marries someone else, then she's going to turn into seafoam. Okay, bye. Like, that's the, the implication. Like, that's the, the rules that are set out. And there's no nothing deep to his character. They're just like, oh, yeah, he also is a sea creature. And so he knows about these things. And he's this older, older man in comparison to them. And so he must be the knowledgeable one. He must be the smart one. And he has the name Triton. So he he's the, the guy who sets down the rules. And I, you know, again, not I'm not interested in these other characters, truly. Like, there's the, we're introduced to the, the club through the owner. And then he really isn't that important throughout the rest of the thing. That, I mean, for thematic reasons, of course, you need to have, like, the male owner who's sitting there and, like, exploiting these girls and using them. To, to, for his advantages or whatever, to, to be able to appeal to whatever. His integrity is more important than their livelihoods uh, throughout the film, as when uh, Silver loses her voice, he's like, I won't have any you know lip-syncing in my club or whatever, and that's more important to him, even though he keeps on saying, like, Silver, we love you, like, you're part of the family or whatever, it's more important to him to have that integrity for his club, for his business, right, than it is for her to have a job. And I think that it's... Um, but I think that he's not interesting as a character. In fact, the one scene where, not him, but the rest, a bunch of the other characters get together and have their own musical sequence, I'm like, all right, come on, let's cut away as soon as possible. I don't care if they're doing drugs together, I guess, or if they... Yeah, that that was a little bit funky. That's one of those things about this movie that's like, was this the victim of edits or something? Sure. It's just... Yeah, because, it's... I mean, well, that comes immediately after... It prevents it from hitting the next level. Scene where Golden and Silver are kind of having their face off, where this this conflict between them comes to a head, and mm-hmm. it's actually really cool because they are singing the, in synchronization this nursery rhyme, right? That that develops kind of, and changes, yeah, yeah, and you can kind of pick up the idea that like, oh, this is about some some mermaid, like it's childish in a sense, but it's like, oh, it's kind of this thing about resenting what you are as a mermaid and like wanting you know it's it's kind of like a part of your world as a nursery rhyme thing but very weird and ominous and dark and then they i mean they're burying their teeth at each other they're they're doing Mm -hmm. this they're like squaring up they're going up against each other and then you know eventually it, it kind of bubbles over and they're laughing and they seem to have made up and then the main band leader guy comes in and just punches them both simultaneously in the face. And it's like, oh, okay, that's like a cute, funny way to end the scene. But then it's like, oh, no, they think they're dead. They're putting them in body mm-hmm. bags. They're dumping them over a bridge. Now they're doing Requiem for a Dream. And then they're not dead. They come back, and they're fine. They're and it's like, what, what, what's, what's up? What's going right. on Right. I, I think that... Uh, it, it's also... I don't think that they're pretending to be dead. I don't think they just think they're dead. I think they're dead. I think the point is supposed to be that somehow these mermaids, uh, the metaphor ends here. Like these women will eventually kill, die in in this the the systems they've been put in where they're exploited over and over again until they try to kill each other. And then you know either if they don't kill themselves, then some man is going to kill them. Is the idea? But because they're mermaids, they get they're they're sort of 
revenge. They get to come back. They get to to live the life that that no one else gets to live. Where where they get to to come back and bite that guy's finger off and whatever. And uh, the ultimate exploitation is is love in itself, where they you know they fell in love with this guy and and turn into sea foam or whatever. I think that that's the the reading I have of their their deaths is that they did die. But also, you can't kill them because this—they're the—they're the exceptions to the rule uh, about um, young girls in this kind of an industry. Maybe, yeah. I just—that didn't really come through for me as much. It's also and... the worst part of the movie, for sure. Like they sure, die, yeah. and then you're like you said, "Requiem for a Dream" happens, and then they come back, and you're like, "Okay, did anything change?" <laughs> Was there any? Yeah. Did I learn anything new about the characters? Was there was there any depth to the, to to their relationship that didn't? That yeah, I I mean I dispute your lack of care for the kind of supporting cast members. I sure. mean I agree they're not as interesting, but I think that the the main guy and the bassist and the the singer of the band have this. Mm-hmm. They're showing an interesting and valuable angle of the other side of okay, here's love after it's kind of burned out and you're just sort of old and shitty and you resent each other and you're just using everything as a, as a piece to like take small vengeances on each other. And I think that's a nice thing to include as an element. Um, and also just the whole surrogate child aspect of it and how they're t- kind of taking them in but also exploiting them. And Yeah, that's... I think that that's... It's not a superstar, shine out, you know, top billing part yeah. of the whole thing, but I think it's a, it's a nice perspective to keep. It um, is. It's a taut film. Angle. It's a taut film. It's very, very short. It's like 90 minutes. And I appreciated that because I was like, you, you nailed it. Like, get out while the getting's good, you know? Right. But at the same time, I think that it almost could have all that stuff cut out and I would appreciate it more because I... I, I get the perspective that you're coming from, but I, I it just I, I care so little. When you have a place full of mermaids and and you know sexualized neon violence and musical numbers, then why also tap into this like family drama thing? You know, like like this like oh you know other people also are exploited by the industry thing yeah. too. Like who? Eh. But that but you know that's just me. I did like. Now, Sean, you're gonna have to correct me if I'm wrong about this because I wrote this down, at, at knowing that you would like get on my, get on me if I if I just. I'm glad that you're afraid of me. Right, what right, do right. You need to follow uh, your example. The the dude they fall in love that uh, Silver falls in love with, total cowboy bebop looking guy, right? Like, is that is that fair to say? Oh, like Spike. Uh, sure. The main character of Cowboy Bebop that you see in like posters and maybe if you haven't seen the film think is named cowboy bebop <laughs> yeah a little bit i mean he's got the he's a tall lanky guy with kind of with longer kind of messy scruffy hair and a couple of times he sure. wears the big long tie with the, the big yeah long sleeves on that's the what i was yeah, thinking of i can i can see it a little bit a little bit i don't know what, did you have Cowboy Bebop on the mind? What was the crux of this? No, I just saw him and thought Cowboy Bebop. And I, I just mean that I like their look. I like the side characters' looks. I like everything in this movie. Like you were talking about the, the flight attendant, attendant 
uh, uniforms. I think that every single character in this movie boils down to a really cool, distinctive look that sets them apart from the other characters and implies a little bit about their personality without going too in-depth about it. And and so I, I you know, I, I got to appreciate the look. I think that part of what makes this, like, my kind of movie is how much they're about. Because here's the kind of thing I like. I like anything that's just the full spectrum of human experience. Sweep me up and just this this grand tale that'll take me through all the highs and lows of everything within the everything that, that the human soul can possibly be put through. You know, love, sure. despair, tragedy. So this is absolutely that kind of thing, and it's got that stylization. It's not so much about the, the literal unfolding of a plot, but still very watchable. This what I'm basically saying is like this is a Sean movie, up and down, back and forth, signed, sealed, delivered. On paper, this is everything I would want, like a ten out of ten. But there's just so many weird, janky little things that stop me from being able to be fully on board. And that's I, I almost want to come away with, depending, you know, despite the fact that we've been really, really positive and rightfully so. Mm. I still always come away from it thinking like, man, this could have been one of the great ones. Yes, certainly. I I mean, I basically finished this movie and I was like, I want to watch it again because I wish it, it, like, is that it? Is there a little more to push it over the edge or, or I can't believe that there's like these little tiny flaws that just, you know, stick a little thorn in my foot to, to stop me from being like this. Let's, let's uplift this forever. You know, again, I will watch this movie again and it's, cool and it's pretty stinking awesome if you like this movie and i encourage everyone watching uh, or everyone listening for the most part if you are able to stomach it to definitely check it out uh but that being said uh this is a really good date movie for a girl who is slight like very slightly out of your league <laughs> that's what i would say i'm very interested to see what smojinska might be doing next I, th- mm-hmm. I think that this is her own like let me see. Let me hit her. Well, it um, said it, on Google it called her a Polish film writer. So I was interested in looking into that because uh, she's got two she's more that she's directed since. Mm. Haven't heard of them at all. Uh, the Lure is definitely her big breakout one. Uh, I'll, I'll be sure to check them out, though. I think yeah. that uh, she's, she's got some real chops and she has the potential to make one of the great ones. I think it's still cooking in the oven, though. She's also the, I mean, she is the second female filmmaker we've covered on this podcast, and I think that's also worth mentioning. The second and the last. We are putting a boycott on all women until they get their act together. (laughs) Nah, just playing. I'm just playing. That is going to be it for the week. So, Sean, we get to rank these four films within the Criterion Collection. We get to. We have to. This is our burden. This is our curse. Yes. We, if we I didn't will have, have to, do to this watch these fucking movies, I would be, I would be happy. I would be wealthy. But ever since we started this podcast, I've gained seventy-five pounds. I have hollow, shrunken eyes. I want to die every second. <laughs> I mean, that is only a little off from the truth, Sean. When it comes to you, I will say uh, this is also really notable, Sean, because we have hit. 53 films we've crossed flesh for frankenstein puts us over the threshold we've crossed 50 films how do you feel about having watched more than 50 films for this podcast um pretty easy yeah we, we did it no no scope 360 yeah we we, we did it mm, they said we couldn't do it 
Uh, All right, so this week, uh, my rankings are, are pretty, pretty low. Uh, number 53, I, I increased my, my opinion of it, but I gotta put it all the way at the bottom flesh for frankenstein i i did not dislike it as much as say walker or even the long good friday which are movies that i just could were was were double checking the time every couple moments to to make sure that i could finish this thing uh but i i don't think it holds up very well uh coming in right above long good friday and walker it's blood for dracula at number 50 right below alphaville uh this this last couple weeks, man, have, have been really close and everything. Yeah, you've been going uh, through it. Blood for Dracula, I, I think, is just a little more entertaining, and, and that's why I put it a little higher. Um, coming in uh, higher, we you know, we, I, I've also noticed our picks. Our our picks are obviously both higher than this, uh, both higher than the ones we, we end up having to do. Yeah, they come out of the gate stronger on the list, True. which I think makes sense. Or sorry, on the spine numbers, they typically put the heavy hitters out near the beginning, which, you know, respect. It's fine. The lore is coming in at 28, right below Hard Boiled and right above A Night to Remember. I, I felt I wanted to put it a lot higher, but I, I just couldn't. I think Hard Boiled just edges it out by being very uh, obviously what it is, and the lore is not obviously what it is. Uh, it is it is a lot of things, and so I, I put it a little bit lower. I, that sounds that sounded like nothing. You know what? That was nonsense, but uh, it's true. Night. Crack at it. No. All right, we're going. Night of the Living Dead, number twenty, right below Dead Ringers, which is holding surprisingly well, and uh, right uh, uh, right below, sorry, Dead Ringers, which is holding surprisingly well at number nineteen. And number twenty one is Fantastic Planet. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, huge fan don't think it's a masterpiece i think that this is where i'm drawing the line of like uh okay you're crossing into uh like where the criterion collection should be i'm, I'm putting it right there at fantastic planet right right below it or maybe mikey and mickey where i'm like this is these are the canon films the important ones and night of the living dead definitely belongs there and night of the living dead definitely belongs there and uh yeah so that's that those are my rankings i I had a great time this week with every single film on this list for the most part. Uh, Flesh for Frankenstein maybe being the exception, even though it's you know the lowest on my list. Letterbox is down right now, so I have no idea what the rankings are. I'm just gonna do a ballpark. Um, okay, <laughs> so the lore I remember was at like 28 or something. Uh, I don't know. It was pretty high. It was pretty good. <laughs> um, it might be between some other movies. Night of the Living Dead is a little bit lower, but not that much lower. Uh, Flesh for Frankenstein is high as an 8 out of 10, so it's probably, I don't know, low 20s or something in between. You put Flesh for Frankenstein above both Lure and Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, I might have. I can't fucking look at the list right now. <laughs> I have no idea. Blood for Dracula is the lowest movie on my list. It's the only one that I was just disgusted and abhorred by I, it's, it's again weird for me I don't know if I said it before so I don't know if I can but very mm. weird for me not the type of movie I would have expected to hate like more than whatever other boring bullshit that right, we right. have to watch that you love that you insist is funny <laughs> and then every time we watch it you're like oh it's actually really not that funny or good but it's you know what are you talking about What what give me an example of that movie 
Well, I can't because Letterbox is down. So uh, fair enough. And this is what happens when you depend on the internet too much, folks. Uh, yep. And uh, but continue to listen to our podcast for sure on the internet. Even though uh, next week we have uh, some, we have two really interesting movies uh, that I'm I'm really excited to delve into. We got Picnic at Hanging Rock. And uh, following up on, on an auteur that we're, we're going to have to cover a lot of movies by. And uh, then we got one of our favorites, Sean, both of us. This is, I've written I pieces on this. I love, mm. You know what I say when movie. I see this movie? Mmm. Mm. It's like a mm, tasty yummy. piece of cake that I get to eat because it's so good. Yep. The movie is M. By Fritz Lang. Mm, mm. Cool. Yes, Fritz Lang's rapidly super rising excited. through films that are unfortunately not in the collection, but rapidly rising through the ranks of my guys. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen you on Letterboxd when it was not down. Yeah. <laughs> in those halcyon uh, days. Crazy- the before times, we call it. So I was thinking, because we have two movies here that are about a mystery. You know, it's a little bit spooky. Yes. What's going on? We don't really know. We're unmoored in reality. We're walking through the dark forest right now. What's that? I'm seeing a big glowing clue on the ground, like it's a video game. Pick it up. Turn it over. It's my pick for next week. Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, a movie that I've had on my list forever. Um, I've seen Pulse by Kurosawa. Very fucking cool movie. Um, it contains... Like one of the only things I've seen in a movie that actually scared me, and also just besides that, just incredibly, incredibly good. Cure was on my let. Yeah, it's it really good. Cure was good. on my uh, letterboxed watch list before in the before times. Uh, but I have never. I don't know anything about it other than people being like, "It's important. You should watch it." So I'm excited to, to check that. Out. That's never something I'm excited to hear about a movie that it's. Yeah, that's why we're doing a podcast about the Criterion Collection. So for my pick, I'm choosing a, a movie that I have not seen by one of my guys, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. For the Peter Laurie connection alone, we have to do The Man Who Knew Too Much. I am so hyped just to, to, to throw out another Hitchcock. I know you are pretty sour on him after after our last Hitchcock outing. See uh, he's on thin ice. Yes, the lady vanishes was not not exactly either of our. I mean, for both of us, it was low on our list. Although I contend it's still a functional movie. It's newly not the last on my list. Yes, as of true. Now. But uh, hopefully we'll get we'll get you back from Hitchcock's side after this. So uh, that is we got picnic on hanging rock, uh, Fritz Lang's M. For my pick, we have uh, the man who knew too little. Or sorry, the man who knew too much. I'm I'm getting mixed up. Oh, that would be we'd be that'd be really bad if we were watching Bill Murray. You are fucking frazzled today. I am 100. And then uh, for your pick, we have Cure. That'll be all for the today. And so, uh, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Go to all the links in the description to check out our TikTok, Twitter, uh, and our uh, Instagram. Anthony, uh, it, ooh man, that frazzling. All we see everything is an Anthony Reviews podcast, so go to anthonyreviews.com for more of my reviews and uh, other interesting things that you can check out. Tons of different links to other content from from this network. Uh, Thank you to Sophia Poole for our editing. Oh, you know what? 
I'm hearing some sloshing sounds. I'm hearing the creaking of decaying bones. I think I've go got, got some business to go attend to with you guys in this episode. And as always, true believers, quickly go text Robert. Uh, go go call him up and and tell him. <laughs> tell him to save me. Just tell yes, him to help Stan. He'll know what it means. Help, it'll help me escape. I'll give you a no prize. Anything. Stan? Stan? Get back in your cage, buddy. Oh, you no, know what time no, it is. No, Pretty good. Okay. They're calling it the <laughs> worst was, episode of all time. So <laughs>